In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What's um what's going on? What's you have a new baby? I have a new baby. Oh my gosh, we brought home our new little dachshund. His name is Harrison. We brought him home yesterday. He's 2 months old. And he is like the cutest little mush you have ever mm-hmm. seen. I have to just start promoting like uh, our other dog's Instagram. Because, you know, of course our dog has an Instagram because that's who we are. Sure. Um, yeah. So if you want to check out our current child's Instagram, and by child, I obviously mean a dog. His name is Neville. And his Instagram is Neville Longbody. There's two underscores <laughs> in between Neville and Longbody. Because Two someone, underscores. yeah, somebody else has Neville Longbody. Yes, a few people have iterations of it, and the closest I can get was the underscore, and then that person has like three posts for the like past ten years. God, it's like our cool story pod Twitter account. Exactly, unbelievable. So, anywho, you'll see pictures of our new boy Harrison on there. Maybe I'll uh, we can throw some on the on the Instagram and stuff. But yeah, he's the cutest little thing. He definitely is. Um, He's a lot like Neville was when we got him two years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing he's not like Neville with, and I know you can relate, and I never could relate to this before. Neville was not good about crate training, but when we finally accepted he, we, we couldn't deal with him crying all night um, <laughs> yeah. and put him in the bed, we just, we got, we got through it and we don't yeah. care that he's crate trained or not. Harrison, we tried the crate training thing because we know he's, he's been in crates with his yeah. his little litter and litter thought, mates, okay maybe yeah. he'll be used to it a lot of screaming screaming like i've never heard a dog scream and but the last time it, uh-huh. went, on, it went on for like it was like almost 3 a.m and he was screaming like i thought it was like a human scream i'm like we're gonna get arrested Ugh. we're gonna have yeah. like child protective <laughs> services called on us and we don't even have a freaking kid um i also Still, I'm not getting a lot of sleep with the puppy because she is only a month older than Neville. I so can't. I'm t- I'm tired. I, I uh, am, have seen the sunrise more times in the last month and a half than I think I have in my entire life. Do you just and stay I'm not up? a fan? Yeah, I, I bet. Do you just stay up with Chess when her current routine is to wake me up at about like one or one thirty to go to the bathroom, which is great. I'm happy that she wakes me up to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I'm recently have been able to get her to come back to bed for probably another two hours, two and a half hours. And she usually, so she usually like wakes up and at least wants like an hour of playtime at like 4am. Okay. Wow. And then she goes back to sleep Yeah, and I'm too awake to go back to sleep. I, can totally relate i we got up last night after all the crying in the crate <laughs> crying in the crate <laughs> copyright that one our first uh original song our first single yeah, yeah. <laughs> where we'll be like ali and aj which who by the way have you heard their redo potential new breakup song yes i don't like it goodbye so um <laughs> <laughs> the uh yeah he got we we're like okay we're up now we're fine we'll we're over it we're not like trying to get you back to bed now we're up right and we're so just up. yeah so we're like okay let's just accept this and we're letting him play neville was really cute like he would get up every time harrison was too loud and he would like watch us like dealing uh-huh. with him almost like <laughs> concerned like what are we gonna oh do? yeah like he was one Z- of us <laughs> there are times where when the baby barks or cries ziggy like 
jumps on me and looks at me like, what's wrong? Like, what's happening? And I'm like, <laughs> you are fine. And I don't need you adding to the drama. Like, simmer down. <laughs> That's how Neville is. He's like, he wants to relate with us. Like, he wants to roll his eyes with us. Right. You know, like, he gets out on the kids, couch like, oh, am I right? Yeah, can you believe this one? Unbelievable. <laughs> I did have one recommendation I wanted to share. Okay. It's called Murder on Middle Beach. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it was getting advertised a lot on like, okay. on things. Like, it was coming out. I think it came out about a month ago. And it's like probably four or five episodes long. I'm in episode three, and it is really, really, really good. Uh, hmm. It's real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, okay. It's oh, really you know good. why? I, I do remember hearing this. I'm kind of thinking that on My Favorite Murder, they talked about it, and they were so confused to why it was called Murder, Murder on Middle Beach. And then they figured out Middle Beach was the name of the street that it occurred on. Yeah, they, they put the... But, but they were like, there's no beach. The town is not called Middle Beach. <laughs> but their what last is name on? is Beach, too. Oh, weird. Yeah. Okay. So here we are. It's episode 17. No, 18. episode 18. And I'm the Law and Order recapper, and you're the True Crime recapper. So should we dive in? I'm excited. Yeah. I'm interested okay. to see your take on this episode. Uh, okay. So this episode was called Mushrooms which I was confused about for a while. Mm -hmm. And it's not, well, I guess we will give our grades to it at the end of the episode. So <laughs> I'll just, I'll say things then. When you, so, saw, when you saw the title of this episode, what did you think that the story was going to be about? I assumed it was going to be about like mushrooms, the drug. Exactly. So did I. Yeah. It is not about that. No, no mushrooms, the drug, no Mario brothers, nothing. No. Nothing mushroomy. And no, no Mario Brothers either. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the episode opens with a really unnecessarily long shot of a kid riding a bicycle up to an apartment building. It was, they like followed him for like three blocks, I feel like. It went on for several minutes. They could have used it as like the opening credits of a different show. Like a movie. With, yeah. They could have played a little jingle of, over it and it could have been like the opening credits of Family Matters. It could have absolutely been. <laughs> so he pulls up to the apartment and there's a kid or a young man outside wearing a Letterman jacket and he smiles and he's got a grill. Like you can see like the gold of his grill as he smiles. And then we hear like literal automatic weapon firing and a woman scream, no, as they look up at the apartment windows and the kid in the Letterman jacket books it out of there. So the kid with the bicycle is kind of like left standing there, not sure what's happening when Batman or somebody else wearing a cape or a really voluminous jacket who we can't really see kind of just runs out and knocks over the kid <laughs> in his bike. And <laughs> it really was like that. It was like a... um. It was like I was watching like Spirited Away or something, and this like creature had manifested a, a, a this a cape cape like feature. It was just yes. like a cape floating. It, yeah, they never explain it, but mm. shadow people full circle from it's last week. It's the shadow people. You're right. <laughs> You're right. So the cops arrive, and it's our best friends Logan and Grievy, and they're talking about some sports thing that I don't understand, but I do know that it's either hockey or basketball because they mention a buzzer, and that's those are the only ones that have a buzzer, right? Um, sure. Okay. I imagine. 
Logan, of course, makes some offensive comment because that's the extent of his character development so far. (laughs) And I just wanted to note that Grievy is feeling his oats because he's back in his film noir detective fedora. You're right. He is. Did you notice? I didn't notice, but that is very on brand for how he acts in this episode, too, from you just saying that. Uh, Yes, very, very much. (laughs) So they see men carrying out a stretcher and Grievy goes, ah, another kid. And I had to pause and rewind it like 15 times because the lighting was so bad that I couldn't Mm -hmm. see a person on it. I was like, is that a fire extinguisher? Is that a big thermos? What was that it was it was a person, but what but the way it was like the lighting and the angle, I had to rewind and rewatch several times to actually Wait, see it the wasn't person's like head. a fire extinguisher. There was something else on the gurney with him, but there was a person on the gurney. It was very strange. It looked like a pile of laundry. It really, I I was like, what do you mean a kid? It looks like a thermos. So anyway, I also just want to note that in addition to his fedora, Grievy is wearing a Burberry scarf. So apparently, he's not only like feeling fancy, but he's rich. So they walk into the apartment and you see one of those like bouncy baby things that you hang from a door frame so that a baby can kind of like bounce themselves and it's splattered with blood and the front door is also riddled with bullet holes and it just kind of like fades to black and we get the title sequence. So while that's playing, I uh, relearned the Dewey Decimal System and (laughs) then we cut back to the episode. And we're back in the apartment, and they're interviewing a woman who says, how am I going to tell Denise? And I'm thinking, Denise Richards has so many spies that she already knows. <laughs> she has all the text messages. She already knows what's happening. Yeah, she's, probably, she's already running. Yeah. She's already running because they're, they're trying to get them because of their, their, you know, <laughs> cure, their cure for cancer with your thoughts. Uh, I wish, I really am sad that Beverly Hills didn't go into that storyline more with his, like, unbelievably bizarre as that comment was that they never brought it up again i i mean i was like afraid for the lives of them if they kept talking about it because he (laughs) must be in some kind of weird cult nonsense for anybody who's not a listener um or a watcher of the real housewives of beverly hills denise richards is married to a man named aaron and supposedly he thinks he's discovered the cure for cancer and he thinks like big pharma is after him and tracking him down yeah just FYI. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, one more FYI real quick. If you hear yeah. a lot of noise, disclaimer, I have a new puppy upstairs. So we are, I've instructed Davey to be as quiet as possible. Uh-huh. But there may be a lot of background noise. I haven't heard anything so far. I sure have. So, uh, oh, have you? you? Know, Sometimes there's a little squeaky toy, a little tumble around, a little bit of Neville barking. So just a warning. Listen, (laughs) you're in the moment with us. You're in the moment with us. Let's go on his journey together. Stuck in the middle with you. (laughs) Um, And we are back. Okay, so we're in the apartment. And um, Denise. uh, Yes, Denise. So essentially, we learned that the baby was 11 months old, and the baby has been killed uh, by the gunfire. And there's an an older child who is in critical condition. And the woman watching them, I think, is the baby's grandmother, but I don't think they ever give her a name. And I don't think they ever say, like, this is the grandmother. She just is a woman there. Yeah, it was imp- like I think it was, it was just implied. really implied. we we yeah. wondered the same thing. Okay. 
Uh, so they ask where they can find Denise because they want to get more information. And uh, the grandmother directs them to d- where Denise works, which is in one of the offices in Columbus Circle, which was the vaguest instructions I can imagine. Yeah, I understand. Columbus Circle's not a, like a tiny spot. And there's a lot of offices right? over there. A lot. I would imagine. So we cut to a building in the Columbus Circle where they find Denise, who is one of the custodial staff, and they tell her that Gregory is in the hospital and she, like, tries to run out the door to go find him, which, you know, wouldn't you be, like, what hospital, wouldn't you at least find out what hospital before you tried to sprint out the door? But, hey. Grief. Panic. Did you say grief? Grief, panic. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they tell her that he's in serious but stable condition, but her other child, her baby, her 11-month-old is dead. And she's obviously upset. And she does one of those, like, acting choices where she's, like, so overwhelmed with grief that I can't really tell if it's, like, really good authentic acting or it's really, really terrible acting. You know? Yeah, it was. It definitely skirts the line. I think, in my opinion, it's really good. But I okay. can't. It's definitely that very theatrical, like, yes. moment of grief. And, you know, everyone has to have a suspension of, like, disbelief if they've never seen someone like that, you know? Right, exactly. Also, do you recognize the actress? The mom? Yeah. No, who is she? She is a law and order. order like veteran to come um oh she is oh my gosh yeah she plays someone who's going to be on the show for like 10 years on the oh wow you're right lieutenant anita van buren uh well that's exciting she was a good i think she was a good actor so i it makes sense that they brought her back yeah i like her when she comes on the show too I mean, I'm still surprised that Erica Jane didn't land a series regular uh, moment from her role as the girl who died in the first episode. <laughs> Listen, S- Law and Order SVU is still on, and I have hope. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's going to need those checks with what she's going through right now. So anyway, uh, all of this is alleged. I don't know anything. So... We cut to the police station and Captain Cragen is asking what Logan and Grievy have figured out so far. And Grievy's basically like, we don't have a lot because the bullets that uh, we collected from the scene were too deformed from going through the door to get a positive identification on the type of bullet. Uh, but there is another bullet like at the base of the baby's skull or something. And so they're th- like, well, maybe that one we'll be able to extract during autopsy and identify. So Cragen asks how the older boy, Gregory, is doing and tells them that he's called Mushrooms, uh, which is, I guess, a nickname for a video game he played that involves centipedes and mushrooms. And you shoot at the centipedes and the mushrooms block the bullets or something. I don't know. I don't even know what game that's supposed to be. (laughs) You never played Centipede? Oh my god, is it Centipede? Yeah. Are there mushrooms in it? They look like mushrooms, like... Yeah, like the whole round is like these little mushroom-shaped f- shapes, and the centipede is like weaving through it, and you're trying to shoot the centipede, but sometimes you have to like break the mushrooms in order to get to the centipede. I never, I, I just Googled it. I, I've i never played this. Oh, it's like- But I'm, I recognize like the font and the image from an arcade game, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's one of those like Miss Pac-Man, you know, classic yeah, yeah, yeah. arcade games. So his name is Mushrooms, and I don't understand, Grievy gets really upset in, the, in this moment, when he finds out that the boy's name is Mushrooms, well, as though he thinks it's in, like, poor taste or something, I didn't understand his reaction. 
So we'll get into it a little bit in my my part, but it's his name isn't Mushrooms. It's not his like nickname. He's referring to the boy as a mushroom. Cragen is? Yes, he's referring to him as a mushroom. I don't get that. It's a term for... Oh my god, oh, 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 oh. He like got in the way. Yeah, it's like a term oh, for someone fuck. who's in the way. And that's like the description of it. Like he's he's presenting it as though it's a colloquial term. Like, okay. I don't know if I'm using that, the word colloquial correctly, but he's presenting it as if it's a well-known used term on the streets slang. And it's okay. like, they think it's in poor taste because, you know, the kid is dead. Right, right, right. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. So uh, Craven asks, Craven, Cragen asks Grievy if <laughs> this has anything to do with drugs. If this has anything to do with drugs. And Logan says, you know, I assume so whenever there's automatic weapons. And he says, Logan says, I've got 10 bucks that says the older brother is a dealer and this is just payback. So Cragen calls for a judge and asks for a warrant so that they can search the Winter's apartment um, and see if there's any connection for the older boy to any sort of uh drug or gang related stuff so they're back at the apartment the winter's apartment and the mom the grandmother sorry asks why grievy why the police always come too late and after come after somebody gets shot and he's like with all due respect how are we supposed to get here before and then logan Hmm. calls to him from the kid's bedroom where he's holding up a gun that he found in the nightstand and he's using a, one of his favorite implements to touch evidence with, a pencil. He's holding up the gun. It's number two pencil, though. Number two, yes. And the grandmother set walks in and says that it's not Gregory's gun. It belonged to his dad, and it doesn't even have bullets anymore. They just kept it around for protection. And they still bag it and take it away and say, you still need a permit for a handgun. Good. They walk. <laughs> Thanks. They walk outside and notice that the kid with the bike from last night is there. And, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. So they walk outside. They see a kid with a bike, and the bike's kind of fucked up. It's the kid from last night who got, he and his bike got knocked over. And Logan says, what happened to the bike? And uh, they ask him if they know anything from the night before. And the two boys, rightfully so, are reluctant to talk to them. And... They do eventually give Logan and Grievy information about a guy in a letterman jacket with a checkerboard kind of shaved into his hair and that he had um, gold caps on his teeth. So they take him and his mom down to the station and show him a list of photos to see if he recognizes anyone. And the mom is like, do you know what's going to happen to him if the neighborhood thinks he's a snitch? And Logan says, we're not asking you to snitch. We're just talking here, Uh, which is... I I hate that. And he says, yeah. if you were looking for a bad guy in your neighborhood, where would you start looking? And the kid says, reluctantly, at the crack house above the bodega. So they head to the bodega. And as they're approaching it, there's a young black boy outside who, like, spots Logan and Grievy coming and takes off running. So they chase after him, and they chase him into an apartment building. And as the kid's running up the stairs, he's kind of, like, yelling to people, like, the cops are coming to get their attention. Grievy draws his gun and uh, he and Logan literally like shove people into walls left, right and center and start putting handcuffs on people. 
So Logan calls to Grievy from the other room and Grievy walks in. This is their favorite thing today in this episode is like Grievy. And then you hear Logan go like Grievy from another room. They do this like five times in the episode. So Grievy walks into the other room and we see a very convenient pile of automatic weapons and brass knuckles. It's like the the prop person was like, this is what a weapon stash is supposed to look like, right? Like it's just like kind of conveniently piled on like a mattress with no sheets on it. Yeah, it looks like when like a a a teenager acquires guns in whatever way and wants to look like tough, like tough, the kind of picture yeah. they put on their Snapchat. As we all know, we've all done that on our Snapchat. <laughs> so Logan says, "Can you believe this firepower?" And Grievy says, "You guys are so trigger happy. Why don't you join the army?" And that's the end of that scene. Then we cut to like a two, two and a half second scene at the medical examiner's office where he says that it was a nine millimeter bullet. And that's basically all that mattered in that scene. That's all we learned. But then we go to them talking to, I think, a ballistics expert or somebody else in the medical examiner's office. Who's this woman in an incredible outfit? She has a plaid shirt with the sleeves rolled up. It's tucked into some really high-waisted brown corduroy pants. She's wearing a forest green turtleneck shirt under the plaid shirt, and she's got a pixie cut. She looks great. It's it's she looks great. It's I think so, it's, it's so of the moment. I think it's the same ballistics expert we've seen in a previous episode when she shot the gun under oh. the water, and we were like, she looked like she should be in flash dance. <laughs> you know what? I think you might be right. Because I saw her and I loved her outfit and I was like, oh my God, is this you again? (laughs) Oh, good memory. Right? So she she identifies the gun at the scene and says that it's definitely the bullet that fired, or the gun that fired the bullets uh, at the scene at the Winter's apartment. And she says the only prints on it are from one of the kids that they just arrested at the uh, crack house above the bodega. So they go to the interrogation room to talk to that kid whose name is Ronald. And the kid says that he didn't do it. And my, when this scene was happening, because they're talking to him, he's 12, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have a lawyer or his parents present. So I just wanted to, like, this was reminding me of a phenomena that I wanted to talk about, which is called adultification. And there was this study from the Georgetown Law Center on Poverty and Inequality that found that adults view, in this specific instance, they were looking at black girls, and they found that people look at them as less innocent and more adult-like than white girls of the same age. And so when, in this study, they found that that people perceive black girls as needing less nurturing, less protection, less support, being more independent. And so the study kind of concluded that if authorities are viewing black girls as less innocent and less needing of protection, then it would uh, follow that they would do less to protect black girls and view them as more culpable for their actions and punish them more harshly despite being children. And so that kind of explains some of the disparity that we see in like how um, like young black children are treated versus young white children in these sorts of circumstances. And so it's just like kind of ringing some alarm bells for me that uh Shows like Law and Order, I think, can contribute to these kind of narratives because this exchange between the kid, Ronald, and Logan and Grievy is written in such a way that I doubt that there was a single writer of color on this episode because he's 12 years old and they have him acting way, way older than that. 
So I just wanted to point that out because I, I think it's important to kind of pull apart those sorts of narratives that I don't think that they would have written a child in the same way if it were not a child of color in this episode. I completely agree. I didn't I've never heard of that before. That is really interesting. But that show yeah. like that's so spot on with how we see um, victims or survivors of crimes that yes. are young yeah. and black being treated and being Correct. covered by the media and yeah. and how you know um suspects are treated as well in the same demographic like yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah so logan is being really charming with him and he tells the kid who's kind of you know talking back to them a little bit and logan tells him stupid and tough is a bad combination and then hits him on the back of the head it's very like when they see us you know it's very much when they see us. Yeah, that could have fit right into that whole thing. So we cut back to the mom, the mother of the child who died, and they're asking her if she knows this kid, Ronald, who they have in interrogation, because he's the one who had the gun that killed her baby, and they're trying to figure out motive. And so they're like, hey, was your older son Gregory involved with drugs? Uh, was he in a gang? And she gives them this litany about how he's in basketball and he does basketball uh, practice like four nights a week. And then the other nights he's in choir. And she's, I think, rightfully so getting kind of upset with them about it, that they're immediately jumping to these conclusions. And she says, I have a baby who's dead, another who may be crippled, and a supervisor who tells me that going to the morgue and the hospital is personal time. And that I that line, I was like, oh, that that was good. I thought I'm going to give Law & Order a little bit of credit for that one because I think that they're accurately representing the kind of structural challenges of somebody who is working in these kinds of occupations that you don't have a lot of like personal time, free time, flexibility to like take care of your life even when these like horrendous instances happen in your life. Yeah, I thought that was great too. So she does tell them to leave because she has to get back to work. And so then we get a scene of them interviewing the basketball coach to see if Gregory was involved in any gangs or anything like that because they're just not letting this line of questioning go. And the coach is like, nope, that's not something any of my kids would do. And uh, then we, that's the end of that scene. So we cut back to the station and they're talking about how Gregory is this good kid and he has no connection to Ronald. And so Logan says, you know what, let me take another crack at Ronald. And Craig in this time is like, okay, but make sure there's a parent in the room or nothing he says is going to matter. Which, why didn't that happen the first time, but whatever. Uh, hello, yeah. <laughs> so Grievy says, makes some comment like, we'll try not to break the little creep's trigger finger. And they cut back to the room, and they're kind of reading Ronald's rap sheet back to him, and he's, again, kind of sassing them back. And Logan says, you like it in prison, punk? The writing on this episode was not good. It was very lazy. <laughs> By the way, other, it was very lazy. They, <laughs> they did a lot of uh, failed zingers for Logan and Grievy. Bad. Embarrassing. Yeah. So Ronald's mom tells him to answer the cops, and he says no. And she, again, some pretty dramatic acting, stands up, slaps him across the face, and says, you think you can play this fool game with me? Um... And it was, uh, again, I thought some pretty good acting. I so, thought so, too. Davey was like me. Davey's like, if the, I would be that way as a parent. 
(laughs) (laughs) So Ronald says that he lent the gun to a man, or sorry, a boy named Diz, D-I-Z-Z, who we learn is his cousin. And so they ask the mom, what does his cousin look like? And she says, he's got a design cut into his hair like a checkerboard and gold teeth. So that's the boy with the letterman jacket that we saw outside the apartment in the first scene. They keep doing this description as though it's supposed to be like sort of intimidating. Like, oh, this kid with a checkerboard cut into his head and a grill. And I just thought it really, do you remember Burger King Kids Club? No. (laughs) What? Okay, so you know how McDonald's had all like, you know, Ronald McDonald and Grimace and Birdie and all those characters, Fry Guys. Of course. Yeah. Burger King tried their hand at it too. And it was the Burger King Kids Club. And it was a group of kids that honestly look like spinoffs from the Captain Planet Planeteers. (laughs) Oh, no. Just in different demographics. There was like, you know, they were showing someone from every like walk of life and blah, blah. Anyway, he really could have just been one of them. He really could have just been (laughs) a cool kid hanging out in a cartoon character. He could have been on recess. Yeah, it was not it was not an intimidating look. I think they were just doing it for the ease of writing and being able to say like, oh, that's him. Yeah, she described it as though though she was, you know, a 90-year-old woman who was seeing someone with a tattoo and being like, oh my god. (laughs) Tattoos. So they go to an outdoor basketball court to track down Diz, and Diz makes a run for it, and he says he wants a lawyer when they catch him, and Grievy looks at Logan and says, yeah, give him a lawyer. And then Logan slaps the hat off the kid's head and throws him against the chain link fence multiple times while screaming, I want a name. Ridiculous. There's a lot of there's a lot of high emotion acting in this episode. Everybody is swinging for the fences with their acting choices. Yeah, the, the tension and is high. <laughs> the tension is high. And most of the time they're they're doing successful swings. Uh, they're not swings and misses unless it's Logan or Grievy. Yeah. They arrest him for the murder of Andrew, the baby, and start reading him his rights, and we cut to the interrogation room where he is not giving anything up. And he says he didn't kill any baby, and Logan, again, whoever wrote this dialogue just needs to be pushed into traffic, because (laughs) Logan says, oh yeah, well then you're going down for someone else's bummer. What? (laughs) Bummer. You're going down for someone else's bummer. Is that like a 90s slang? Like, obviously, I know what a bummer is, but it, does that have another meaning that I don't know? No, a bummer, I would say, is like, you know, when you go to, you know, your local coffee shop and it's closed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> not a dead child. That was really fucking weird to me. Yeah, and it's not intimidating either. No. So Diz, Diz's father tries to speak up for him and Grievy immediately yells at him and says that if he doesn't want his parole violated, shut up, Mr. Williams. So fuck off, Grievy. Mm-hmm. And next we get a scene with Robinette, Cragen, Logan and Grievy discussing the crime. And Robinette is basically telling them that they don't have sufficient evidence at this point because all they have are prints on the gun that don't match the person they've arrested and a 12-year-old eyewitness, which apparently is not going to hold enough weight in court. So Grievy then has a cute little racist outburst that I'm not going to summarize. And Robinette basically says, listen, put together a case and we'll put them away. So we cut to the courtroom and they're trying Diz as an adult, which again, um, like the study I talked about with adultification, there's absolutely tons of studies that talk about disparity, racial disparity in sentencing and bail. 
And um, so they're asking for him to be held without bail, but the judge says, no, just give me a number. They ask for a million dollar bail. And Diz kind of erupts and says that he didn't do it. He's being set up. And so we cut to a scene with the DAs and Diz and his lawyer where they're trying to get more information. Like, what are you talking about? What are you, what do you mean you're being set up? What is, what's all this about? So Stone says that he will uh, plead him down to murder too if they give up, if he gives up the name of the person who actually shot the gun. Uh, He lies to them and says that he wasn't even in town. He was visiting family, but they say that they know that's not true. And so he says, okay, fine. It was, uh, it was some, someone named T-Ball and his real name is Franklin. And T-Ball was hired to do this hit. And Diz, his role in all of this was essentially getting the gun for T-Ball to use. So then they go and pick up T-Ball. While they're picking up T-Ball, there is a jazzy electric guitar solo that sounds like soundcheck at a ZZ Top concert. And after they grab him, they take him into interrogation. And they're like, what do you know about this Tech 9 which is the gun? And he has, I think, my favorite line in the whole uh, episode where he says, Tech 9 what's that? Mouthwash? And T-Ball's lawyer is like, okay, give me more time with him. Let me talk to him alone and we'll, you know, see if we can find, we can kind of come to an agreement about getting information for you. So while we're waiting for T-Ball's lawyer to kind of talk some sense into him, uh, Robinette goes to the hospital because the older boy, Gregory, is awake. He is recovering. And this scene, again, doesn't really matter because Gregory says he doesn't recognize anyone. He didn't see anything. And, but Gregory's mom, again, is like, stop blaming my boy for this. Like, he didn't do anything to cause our apartment getting shot up. So then we get an array of really short scenes where basically the DAs are trying to decide, are we going to go after T-Ball for shooting this up this apartment, you know, injuring and uh, sounds like paralyzing Gregory, killing this baby Andrew, or are we going to go after the supposed drug dealer that like called this hit? T-Ball tells them that he was hired to retaliate on behalf of a drug dealer, but he must have gotten the wrong apartment. And supposedly, he was supposed to hit this family over a real estate deal gone wrong. So they go to talk to this family involved in this real estate deal. And they're talking to this rich white woman who has the ugliest floral couches I've ever seen in my life. Oh, yeah. And her name is, her name is Mrs. K. And we learn that Mr. K essentially stiffed a drug dealer whose name was Ingram's. Um, for $300,000 that essentially Ingrams had approached Kay to clean $300,000 worth of money through his real estate business. Ingrams, or sorry, in, not Ingrams, Kay, his like real estate deal f- fell through. And so he used the $300,000 thinking like, okay, I can make this back and then I can pay back Ingrams uh, with the money that I cleaned. But that deal goes south. And so he essentially like stole $300,000 from a drug dealer. Not a good move. No, I thought every kiss began with K. This is not <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> that would have been a better name for this episode, Matt. <gasps> oh, they didn't need that. I, I got to get on the on the different. Uh, I got to get in a different field of work. 
honestly, writing writing little jingles and taglines and episode titles. I would honestly, if I had my dream job, I think besides doing this, I would be like editing like reality shows. Oh yeah, <laughs> just being in the be editing on, room. I would just be on the reality show. I would Ugh. throw a glass of Chardonnay in anyone's face for a check the size of the Real Housewives. Oh my god! So. They ask Kay if he will testify, but he refuses and says that he'd like rather go to a loan shark for the 300000 than rat on Michael Ingrams because he would end up dead. So they bring Michael Ingrams, the drug dealer, the kind of like kingpin guy, into court, and they charge him with multiple murder charges. He pleads not guilty, and they try to get him to plea, but he's like, nope, I've been through this before, and I know that you don't have enough evidence to convict me. By the way, Ingrams is unbelievably hot. He is, right? So good looking. Okay, FYI, he was a, or not was, he was on seven seasons of NYPD Blue as Lieutenant Arthur Fancy. Oh my so god. he... I guess was on that for a long time Um, and kind of a a series regular on Sleepy Hollow, The Night Shift. Uh, He was on a few episodes of The Good Wife. Wow, look at this. He's he's got a pretty big, long um, credit list. So anyway, James McDaniel, if you're listening to this, just know that you're fucking hot. So (laughs) we cut to a scene. Where Stone is trying to get the real estate guy to testify, and he does this whole thing where he's like, listen, if you don't testify against Michael Ingrams, I'm going to have the IRS come after you for all of your shady real estate business dealings. And he does this thing where he's like, this deal is good for 15 seconds. And he opens his pocket watch, and it is clearly so much longer than 15 seconds. And I had to go back and check because it, I was so, I'm so annoyed when there's things like that that happen. Uh huh. Because it was so, it, so it was actually 33 seconds long. <laughs> Especially so, when he got down to five. He was like, oh down my God, to five. The five seconds and it was lasted like for a like full 20. 12 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. Those kinds of things annoy me so bad. Like, still to this day, I'm really, really annoyed that the Madonna, Timbaland, Justin Timberlake song, Four Minutes, is actually four minutes and six seconds. Like, that is so irritating to me. It really is. If you're going to say 15 seconds, have it be 15 seconds. If you're going to write a song called Four Minutes, make it four minutes. Don't call it, don't do four minutes and six seconds. Meet expectations at the very least. (sighs) Honestly. So we cut to the courtroom. Kay is on the stand testifying against Ingram because he doesn't want to, you know, have the IRS come after him and lose everything. And he says that Ingram threatened to, quote, have his place aired out if he didn't get the $300,000 back. And so the defense attorney for Michael Ingram is saying, well, could he have just meant he'd break all your windows? Like, there's other ways you could interpret that, right? Not just like he'd shoot up your apartment. And by the way, the defense attorney looks like if Gilbert Gottfried and John Malkovich had a baby and then got a bunch of lip injections. He's a oh. very oh my god interesting looking man. I will I will see your Gilbert Gottfried, John Malkovich, and I will raise you Gilbert Gottfried and French Stewart. Oh, that's even better. You're absolutely right, Gilbert Gottfried, French Stewart lip injections. I yeah. totally saw him, and I was like, he's very French Stewart, but not quite. So that's the perfect marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So anyway, he's attempting to undermine Kay's testimony uh, against Michael Ingrams, the the drug kingpin, saying that, you know, K 
Kay has had previous convictions for cocaine, like he's not really trustworthy. And uh, Michael Kay is asked some more questions about his involvement with Ingrams, and he pleads the fifth so as not to incriminate himself. And then they put T-Ball on the stand, and he tells them the story about how Ingrams gave him the address to shoot up and, and wrote it down and gave it to him. And through some sort of uh, district attorney precognition <laughs> omniscience, he hands the kids something else to read and says, just go ahead and read this for me. And the kid like pauses and there's silence and Stone goes, you can't read, can you? <laughs> so now we know how this happened because essentially in Stone's closing arguments, he explains that Michael Ingram's called for a hit on um, Kay, the real estate guy, gave the address to this kid who couldn't read and told him the address verbally, but the kid got it wrong and shot up the wrong apartment. I don't know how they determined that this child couldn't read. Like, it just suddenly was, like, thrown in at the last minute, but in his closing arguments, he's like, he learned to pull a gun before he learned to read. Um, and then we kind of get the outside courtroom. There's a bunch of reporters, cameras flashing, and we learn that the uh, verdict came back guilty for Michael Ingrams, and so he's being sent to jail. And a reporter asks the mom of the child who was killed if she's satisfied with the verdict. And she says, what I keep thinking about is the boy that pulled the trigger. He'll be out in seven years. My baby would have been eight years old by then. Would you be satisfied? And so I think they're trying to make the point about how, like, obviously it was this tragic misunderstanding, but also that the district attorneys made this choice to essentially kind of like sacrifice the case against the person who actually shot the gun in order to go multiple levels higher. So I think it, I think that that kind of like closing statement was meant for us to sort of think about the, the ways that sometimes to like catch bigger fish, quote unquote, like the justice system fucks over people in their, in their kind of like tragedies to get bigger up things kind of convicted or tried or whatever. Yeah. So that is the end of episode 17, Mushrooms, which should have absolutely been called Every Kiss Begins With Me. <laughs> well, great job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am excited to hear about the true crime that inspired this. I might have spoiled it a little bit for myself when I was on the Law & Order wiki looking up information about this episode because it seems like it's based on kind of a an assortment of cases yeah exactly okay so okay. it's it's not exactly a true crime it's just about a true ca true cases of of children being hit by stray bullets essentially <laughs> great this is gonna be uplifting yeah <laughs> so it's it's gonna I, you know i have my uh my take on it and I, i'm try i'll try to keep it light but um, sort of in the vein of the episode and what she says at the end of it, the mother of the of the victim and the surviving uh, boy, you know, I feel like she doesn't get justice and it was a total accident that it even happened to them. And, you right. know, you're supposed to be safest in your home. This happens and there's really no justice for them. Anywho, so I, I tried to keep it light, but I do have a few, like... I, I focus on some of the victims and what happened to them just to drive home the point. So my sources for this week 
were Wikipedia, of course, the Law and Order Wiki, of course, and then a bunch of articles. So I have one from the Berkeley Daily Planet by Gar Smith, and I have one from the AP News from 1990 by Larry McShane, a Time.com article from 2020 by, um, I'm going to mispronounce this name, and I actually refer to this one many times, so I apologize <laughs> in advance if you want to help me out there. It looks like Chetan Satya to me. Chetan Satya sounds good to me. Okay, yeah. Anyone out there, feel free to, to pipe in and help me out there, but it's really a very powerful article, I felt like. Um, so I and refer that's to the, that's the author of the article. Correct. Yes, and that's okay, on time.com. Okay. Um, there's also a article from Chicago Sun Times in 2020 by Maudlin Ihirieka. Definitely did that one wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, one from the Trace in 2017 by Jennifer Masha. One from France24.com and another um, report from a CBS affiliate in 2020. Okay, are we ready? Here, here we go. <laughs> okay. So, like I said. Um, this episode is not based on any specific crime, so just a f- epidemic, I guess, of crime. And I've always heard of things like this happening, I guess. You know, you always hear these headlines when they come out, and it's shocking and sad. But I really didn't have any idea it was actually as frequent. Yeah, in the, I guess one of the things I didn't really, like, explicitly say in my recap of the episode was they they definitely were talking about this incident as though it were happening multiple times a day every day yeah and like the term mushrooms we'll go into a little bit because it was actually a term that seems to have been uh, at least widely used for a period of time in in the 80s but yeah people in particular children have been being shot and killed by stray bullets like at increasing numbers since since the early 70s when the sort of spotlight was first shined on some of these crimes being like patternistic in neighborhoods it's really like become beyond an epidemic. As a matter of fact, one of the articles I, I refer to a lot is titled Gun Violence is Killing More Kids in the U.S. Than COVID-19. When Will We Start Treating It Like a Public Health Issue? Yep. Yeah. And according to the Small Arms Survey in 2019, um, one quarter of Americans are armed with 393 million firearms, which accounts for 46% of the world's privately held weapons. One quarter of Americans are armed with 393 million firearms, which accounts for 48% of the world's privately held weapons. I had to read that a few times to understand that. Um, And in his article for the Berkeley Daily Planet, uh, Gar Smith writes, quote, if these gun owners were actually organized into a, quote, well-organized or well-regulated militia, end quote, they would constitute an armed force nearly three times larger than all of the national army armies on earth combined damn yeah i actually learned a lot from from this research i was a little worried i was like i wish i just had a case but i learned a lot (laughs) Um, i'll have to go uh check out that article yeah yeah I'll, i'll send yeah um so i was able to find several articles both old and current referring to innocent bystanders who get shot and killed um and they're called mushrooms in a lot of these articles And there was one article that explained it, how the show did, comparing it to video games, but they used Mario, or Mario, (laughs) (laughs) instead of Centipede, which I thought, that doesn't really make as much sense as Centipede, because mushrooms in Mario games are, like, powerful and make you better, usually. Or like you're able to harm someone else. Shooting, you're not shooting in Mario games. No, no, not even the toads are shooting, so you can't even explain it away. So, not great. 
Um, another article or a couple of articles refer to them as mushrooms because of stomping mushrooms because they don't like matter is what they say. Oh, interesting. But okay. I would argue that mushrooms matter a great deal. Mushrooms in matter. Mario, they absolutely matter. Well, in real and life, too. in real life, because I love mushrooms. <laughs> Hello, I love mushrooms. And there's a lot of research on mushrooms doing amazing things. So oh, to be clear, just so that nobody misconstrues what I just said. <laughs> I love to eat the mushrooms you buy at the grocery store. Yes, that is what I mean. I mean, those kind of mushrooms and like, you know, mushroom teas and all that kind of stuff. I don't have any experience with with mushrooms, but you know, hey, do your thing. Um, But anyway, that's sort of the common thing. It looks like it's more about like stomping mushrooms or they just pop up in unlikely places, blah, blah, blah. So a study was done in 1989 on random bystander shootings in New York, L.A., Washington, D.C., and Boston from 1977 to 1988. And according to the reports, bystander victims in New York rose from 34 between 1977 and 79 to 128 by 1986-1988. Say that again. <laughs> I'm pulling my Brene Brown. Yes. <laughs> now, hold on. According Say to the that report, again. <laughs> bystander victims in New York rose from 34 between the years 1977 and 79 to 128 between the years 1986 and 88. And then in that same report, it says in LA, it went from no bystanders reported shot from 77 to 79 to 105 between 86 and 88. Wow. I would hate to even look up what those numbers are like today. I didn't. <laughs> so that's what was going on at the time of this episode being being um, filmed. And in the week of July, um, so I'm going to go into a lot of the cases that I read about. Um, In the week of July 25th, 1990, in New York, one-year-old Yaritimi Fruto was shot in the head and killed during the murder of her father. And nine-year-old, in the same week, nine-year-old Veronica Corrales was sleeping in her parents' car on a trip home from an amusement park when she was mortally wounded by a bullet to the head. Wow. That same year, 11-year-old Ayana Anderson was wounded while asleep at home in Harlem, and Sean Smith, who was 16, and Jacena Lynch, who was 15, were shot outside their school. So fast forward to current times, when, you know, gun reform and legislation on the accessibility of guns and limitations surrounding firearms, it's like a hot topic for, I feel like, decades. And it's on the front of every, like, political agenda you think surely with all this attention to the danger of guns and firearms and all this there would be something learned from <laughs> all of this <laughs> decades ago you would think but you think. you'd be wrong at that yeah unfortunately it seems like the only thing that's changed is really the like open reporting on it and the um the showing of both sides of the argument <laughs> whether it's it's balanced or not um and the public divide is probably worse than ever on it or or more probably. visible than ever. I have a lot of like, I guess, opinions on shocking, right? Me with opinions. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a lot of opinions about guns and gun control and like, you know, what should be happening and maybe not. But ultimately, I'm very like, I don't really talk about that kind of stuff because I feel very uneducated on like what's currently policy and what is currently allowed and what's not and where and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I don't ever feel really confident talking about 
what should change and what should happen. But I don't know if you have any thoughts you wanted to share on, on those kind of things, but you know, I would, I will say that I don't really know a whole lot about gun laws or studies that kind of talk about like how we can address some of the issues related to gun violence other than I think a lot of people would say that the that a tremendous amount of the gun violence that we see in the country is probably related to a lot of um, economic insecurity and that if we addressed a lot of the issues that caused uh, like income and wealth disparity that we would re- like kind of automatically reduce a lot of the gun violence. That is really, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad to ask you that question because you'll see that kind of come up in some of the articles I read that exact sentence. Oh. oh, great. Yeah. Look at you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I feel almost I, like I went to school and studied this a little bit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> almost like, you know, what you're talking about <laughs> sometimes a little bit a lot of the time so i i mean obviously i feel like there i feel like there needs to be a lot harsher gun control laws i definitely believe there needs to be like a total change in the way like gun violations are handled in general um after my research for this i'm highly in favor of like lots of the ideas that are posed in some of these articles particularly the one from like the berkeley article um that i mentioned before but i'll get into it um later on but i feel like this is the type of crime like I mentioned, and like it's sort of reflected in the episode where the victims and survivors of this kind of gun violence are completely lost, completely reduced down to like a tally mark, um, a pie chart. You know, they're like, com- the names are not mentioned. You see a flash of something on the news and then we're talking about the epidemic. And right at the end of the day, whatever your feelings are on the politics and whatnot surrounding the issues of gun control, which should not even be political, um, what I think is indisputable is that with things the way they currently are, there's a disproportionate amount of people, in particular children, being wounded and killed by people wielding guns and killing them either by accident or in a lot of cases like this, overkill. And I mean specifically yeah. when we're talking about um, like errant bullets that weren't meant for them. I'm trying to recall because I, I, th- I think my brain is putting together some various things from when I was a child, but, or not from, (laughs) not from when I was a child, uh, from like my undergraduate where I did a lot more, uh, kind of coursework on criminal justice, but there's a really interesting documentary called Crips and Bloods that is about the Crips and the Bloods and, and about sort of how guns and like gangs and territory, like really shape people's lives to where there are people who, literally begin and end their lives within one single square mile and never leave that square mile in Los Angeles. And there's, you know, people in those documentaries are telling their stories about how these sorts of gun violence really shape their lives, that they day in and day out are hearing helicopters, are hearing police sirens, are hearing gunfights, that they sleep in the bathtub with their children so that they can't be hit by stray bullets. Like, it it really is something that dramatically shapes a lot of people's lives, particularly folks who are living in areas of significant income inequality. Yeah, I I remember even growing up hearing warnings and dangers of of people being shot inside their house, just being in the house yeah. and like a stray bullet killing you. Like even in my like little suburban nowhere town, you know? Speaking of which, actually, <laughs> 
I, I do have something else that I want to recommend in addition to that documentary. There's a book bought by a man named Elijah Anderson, and the book is called The Code of the Street. And it talk it like goes into a lot of the kind of ins and outs of the expectations of like in the book, Elijah Anderson refers to them as uh, inner city black youth and how they are um, kind of held to different expectations of, you know, masculinity and how you kind of take care of yourself, take care of your family, um, how you interact with the police and all of these dynamics that really we like through things like law and order, we primarily see the story of police observing these phenomena. And we less often hear the stories from the communities of the ways that these things are like allowed to happen and, and how police often aren't very, helpful in these situations to these families. And so if you're interested in kind of more of those dynamics, the book is again called The Code of the Street by Elijah Anderson. That is really interesting. That's kind of like how I tried to approach this research. So that is really interesting to me. Well, there you go. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just thinking about the way life is for the communities rather than, you know, just the, the phenomenon. It's like, we also remember these kids are really young and it's really heartbreaking right. when you read the, the ages of these people, of these children who are being killed and wounded and lives changed forever. Right. Um, so let's see more recent cases. So June 5th, 2017, New York's Jaheen Hunter was walking with his dad on his fifth birthday and he was shot in the head with a bullet meant for someone else. In New Orleans, that same year, a four-year-old was shot on his porch, and a two-year-old girl was shot and killed in her mother's car during a road rage incident. Oh, my God. Yeah. According to the Gun Violence Archive at the time, um, 150 kids... (laughs) Arcade. Arcade. (laughs) Arcade. According to the Arcade, centipedes. (laughs) According to the Gun Violence Archive uh, at the time, 150 kids under 13 were struck by stray bullets between January and June of that year alone. 17 of those people died, and the youngest of them was three days old. No. I know. I mean, any any loss of life is tragic, but my God. I know. A three-day-old, that's... The whole... uh, Yeah. (sighs) On May 21st, uh, DeQuante Hobbs Jr. was eating a piece of cake in his house, and a stray bullet left him mortally wounded. He was seven years old. His mother heard no. the noise from the other room and just and opened the living room and, ha- and found him. No. The impact this has on families, like that's why I wanted to really give these people names and really say the ages. And it's horrible to hear, but like the impact on these families has to be massive. And the, their frequency at which the individuals who are responsible for these crimes are, fra- are found and convicted is very low. And oh, I'm sure. Yeah. There's like these families often see no justice, no public outcry beyond like the the headline and like while yep. simultaneously having to grieve through the sudden like inconceivable loss of your child sibling grandchild you know a loss that is more often than not witnessed witnessed by the members of the family or discovered yeah. by them because it's at the most unexpected times i can't imagine yeah. the impact that has on somebody yeah you very rarely hear anything about the like healing process or or like you said the communities that are actually affected by this like you don't hear any of it 
And you know. so what happens to these people? And like you said, any instance of violence leaves, you know, a big mark on people and, and is, is awful. But the lives of these people are affected because there's no accountability and there's no change. And then this pattern of this happening just further strengthens the systems that allow and facilitate incidents like this to happen in the first place. It just reinforces Correct. everything. And it's like just making it more and more prevalent and easier to look over. And it just That's becomes absolutely. data. Yeah, like the the mom's line about, do you know what'll happen to him if he's like thought of as a snitch in the neighborhood? Like it really puts, like cooperating with the police and giving them any information puts your life at risk in these circumstances. And so the the very process of, the legal system doing its thing in these cases can actually cause a lot more harm than any sort of good that could come out of it, exactly. which I think exactly. is kind of like the mo- the mom's closing line, her whole point. Yeah. And I think we've seen it in a few of the other episodes we've watched um, of Law and Order this season where like when they went to go, I forget which episode it was, but they went to the hair salon and they were interviewing the woman who may oh, or yeah. may not have been involved. And she's like, you're, you're, you can't protect me. Like this is not, there is no protection for me if I talk to you. Don't you right. get it? And then they like make a comment and she's like, you don't get it. And it's like, and you know, as everyone argues over gun control and I deserve to have my gun. Meanwhile, the lives of these young people are cut short, stopped carelessly, and they're just forgotten just as quickly by everyone else. And yep. I just hope that, you know, things like this can bring, I, you would hope that things like this would bring more attention to the fact that all things aside, all politics and everything aside, these are human beings who've been killed and who continue to be killed while everyone's arguing over who gets to keep their guns just because they feel like it. Yeah. Because they feel like it. And something should change, you know? But that's my soapbox soapbox moment for that. <laughs> Thanks for my TED Talk. Um, <laughs> so uh, moving forward, more more depressing things from this year or, you know, this past year, as if we don't have enough depressing things from 2020. Honestly. So really early in the year, on December 2nd, uh, or really late in the year, I guess. Pardon me. On December 2nd, <laughs> uh, 2020, 15-month-old Carmelo Duncan was killed by a stray bullet while in his car seat. His dad and brother were wounded. They were also in the car. And he was the 187th victim of gunshot homicide out of 197 in Washington, D.C. that year. God. Yeah. On July 4th, um, 11-year-old Devon McNeil was killed at a barbecue. One of the shooters had been let out of prison to reduce the spread of COVID in detention centers. And they were just shooting for the fun of shooting the guns. No. Celebratory. Oh God. That same day, across the country, four children... That same day that that incident happened, across the country in four different incidents, four children under eight were killed by stray bullets on that same exact day. Earlier that year in Trenton, New Jersey, on October 21st, 16-year-old Gustavo and 8-year-old Johnny Perez were struck and killed by stray bullets on the second floor of their home, and no one has been arrested. And again, no one is getting arrested in most of these cases, and when they are, most of the the violence is happening in gang-related incidents or a relative of the child or someone that was nearby or in the area was the target. Right. So... About the article I was talking about before that I'm going to uh, mention. So Chetan Satya's article for time.com or maybe the magazine. I don't know how these things work. <laughs> um, <laughs> and again, apologize for the name for uh, mispronunciation. But in their article, they pose that we, tr- that we should treat gun violence as a public health issue. 
And I just want to share some quotes, um, but I encourage everyone to read the article. It's really good. The title is at the beginning. It's the one about COVID-19 and yeah. Mm -hmm. So they write, quote, day in and day out, we justifiably discuss COVID-19 and the risks of reopening schools for our children, but we can't even seem to guarantee that our children won't be shot and killed while playing with friends or sleeping soundly in their beds. Because gun violence has become such a political issue, despite our best efforts, the narrative has also become heavily skewed. We amplify voices of the minority of gun owners who say that this is a Second Amendment issue, which it is not, but we rarely hear viewpoints from the folks who actually live in communities affected by gun violence. The vast majority of Americans support measures to enhance gun safety and reduce gun violence and want to keep their loved ones and communities safe. Let's not lose sight of that. If we continue to politicize gun violence, similarly to the politicization of COVID-19, um, those in disparate communities with high levels of gun violence will continue to bear the brunt of the aftermath, end quote. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Totally. Yeah. No, that was perfect. And I never really thought of this as like a public health concern, but I, it just makes so much sense. And I have a, a couple more quotes from him that are shorter and paraphrased, but um, the okay. author, I should say, is a, he's a pediatric, he's a pediatric surgeon and the director of Northwell Health's Gun Violence Prevention Center. They say, you know, in their, in their practice, in their life now, day in and day out, they're tired of pulling bullets out of children's bodies and describe gun violence as an endemic made worse by the economic insecurity and lockdowns. And that if disproportionately yep. targets underprivileged Americans, most of them being people of color. So like exactly what you were talking about. When I read all of these stories and case after case, I just kept thinking like, why if guns are supposed to be, you know, f for self-defense largely, can a weapon <laughs> be capable of killing someone so far away through a wall with a car between, like, why is that a possibility even? If that's the right. argument, you know? And um, the article I mentioned earlier about guns and bullets being the issue, they expand on that question and they say, it says, quote, if the goal is self-defense, a bullet range could be limited to a distance of, say, 10 feet, and self-defense should not require the ability to kill. End quote. I mean, hello. Right. Um, he cites about 10 different alternative approaches and guns and weaponry that have been implemented successfully. Um, everything from beanbag guns, blunt impact projectiles, or guns that shoot things called LTL rounds, which stand for less than lethal. Hmm. Like rubber bullet kind of thing? Yeah, and there's rubber bullets there too, but there's like a lot of advancement in, in this field and a lot of like possibilities. He ends the article with recommendations that I agree with as as well as including, uh, sorry, he ends the article with recommendations that I totally agree with um, and they include things like banning ownership of semi-automatic weapons, offering a federal buyback option for banned weapons and ammo, um, enacting Senator Warren's proposal to raise federal tax on handgun sales from 10 to 30%, and furthermore, mm -hmm. um, for ammunition sales to raise from 11% to 50%. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, I'm no expert, but I don't think it takes one to think that these things would be beneficial. Right. So the, um, the article in the Chicago Sun-Times, it refers to the summer of 2020 as the summer of horror. And while many of us do, <laughs> I mean, they have, you know, way more tragic reasons for this. This is all cases of, again, stray bullets. And so this was the summer of 2020 in Chicago. It's not, this isn't a far off issue. No. Yeah. And so they have an article that really focuses on the six, six children um, who are 10 years old or younger, who have lost their lives during this summer of 2020 in Chicago. And I wanted to end with some notes on these victims and who they were, because the author writes, 
I, I just feel like most people should feel this way, but the author writes, quote, these are all our children. And yeah. I wish everyone thought that way because even all these articles that are terrible, this is the only article I read that actually spoke about like the children in a human being way, like, and didn't just rush to statistics and I was just going to say, yeah, in, in everything else, it, it, when there is such prevalence of something, it's easy to just let these things become numbers and statistics yeah. and to dehumanize them. Yeah, and then and so I, that's I like agree. the effort, I feel like, because if it's dehumanized, then it doesn't touch people in the same way and it doesn't cause the same outcry in all people, you know? Right, exactly. And so I'm going to read about these six children, um, just some what happened to them just briefly and then more about like who they were. Um, and when I read this article, I, I cried, honestly, so I don't, I don't think I will again, but I'm just (laughs) warning. Okay. I'm prepared. So this is the six, um, cases that happened in the summer of 2020, starting with eight year old DeJore Wilson was killed on September 7th, shot in the back of the head by a stray bullet while in her dad's car. DeJore was a little diva. She loved fashion. (laughs) Her favorite color was pink. And she'd been looking forward to getting her hair done and getting sparkle nails for the start of school the next day. She was a little bit shy, and she loved her dolls and loved school. Nine-year-old Janari Ricks was killed on July 31st, and he was playing outside with friends as an ex-convict sprayed bullets into the alleyway. Janari loved football, basketball, and even more, he could quote sports statistics better than any adult. He loved... Same. Co- <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he loved cars, and his fa- he was... Uh, His favorite car among his model collection was the Ferrari, and he loved video games, and he was set to be the leading Fortnite scorer on his block. Wow. Yeah, right? Seven-year-old Natalia Wallace was killed July 4th while playing outside her grandma's house at a family party. Natalia was funny and outspoken for her age, and when she was around her older sister and her older cousins, or I'm sorry, her older cousins, she did not like to be uh, babied by her parents. She Mm. was always generous with kisses on the cheek and an I love you, and she loved to pose for pictures. And in this article, there's a beautiful picture of each of these children. Like, so adorable, these children. Yeah. 20-month-old Sincere Gaston was killed on June 27th, and um, he was strapped into his car seat on the way home. He was a sweet and happy baby. They were on the way home from the laundromat, and he was nicknamed Shin Shin by his favorite cousin. (laughs) He loved to dance and also eat, despite how tiny he was. (laughs) Uh, 10-year-old Lena Nunez Anaya um, was killed on June 27th while watching TV with her brother in the living room of her grandma's second-floor apartment. She was a princess, so sweet and full of joy, with a beautiful smile and a heart to match. She was very close with her family, and she had many hopes and aspirations for her future. Lastly, three-year-old Mecky James was killed on June 20th in his stepdad's car on the way home from his first barbershop haircut. Mecky was a handsome child with twinkling brown eyes whose smile lit up a room. He was well-mannered and very loving. He could embrace in the tightest of hugs, and he also loved McDonald's. And a happy meal had been waiting for him <laughs> on his return from his haircut. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's awful. And I know it's like heavy and it's sad, but I think it's really important in these details because yeah. to truly like humanize the issue. So I'll end with another paraphrased quote from Satya's article. It is our duty to change the public discourse around guns and focus on this as a public health issue. 
Similar to the tobacco debates decades ago, where it was taboo for doctors to be asking about smoking, we must shift the paradigm and view gun violence prevention as part of the routine health care we deliver. As public opinion surveys constantly show, the Americans support doctors counseling about gun safety, and they are not offended by these questions. Let us then gain some perspective from the pitfalls of politicizing political or public health issues like COVID-19 and not continue to make the same mistake with gun violence. Let's do the work of studying the causes of and potential cures for our gun problem because the lives of our children depend on it. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear somebody from a public health perspective talking about that just because like, it's interesting to hear the different solutions that are proposed because I think as a sociologist, like I'm so interested in sort of the structural issues that are going on that facilitate this happening mm-hmm. that I think like I would I would propose an entirely different set of solutions than that person was proposing. But I think it's interesting to think about m- multiple angles addressing problems. Right. Like look at all the different like people in different um, fields who are all working towards this, who are all trying to work towards the same ultimate goal. And right. why are none of these, why do none of these options seem to be considered? Yeah. yeah. I know. It was a sad one. I warned you. <laughs> I know. Thank you for talking about the, the children and their stories. That's, I do think it's important that those things be talked about so that it isn't just statistics and it isn't just easy to dismiss and say that's, you know, that's not my neighborhood or that's not my, you know, community's problem. But realistically, it it is all of our problems because we're all kind of in this mess together. And so I think it's important to to talk about those things because I think that those those studies show that the kinds of things that change people's minds about things are people's personal stories. Right. And so I think that it's really one of the reasons that I wanted to to do this podcast was to be able to share some of those stories and have people potentially look at things from different perspectives and be able to think about things more completely and more holistically. And so I, I'm really glad that you t- took that approach in talking about the crimes that inspired this episode. Well, thank you. I, I feel the same way. That's a big pull for me for why we do this podcast as well. And I, I hope we achieve that goal. And I hope people hold us accountable to that because <laughs> it is like, you know, it is hard for people to, and I'll, I'll use this myself as an example, rather than saying people, I think it's hard to connect with stories that you don't feel a direct correlation to like you don't feel like you have any personal experience with so you know for me I don't have a lot of you know I have a lot of things I connect to and you know that trigger you know tears in me and and you know and I have a lot of things that you hear a terrible story and you think oh that's awful and you kind of just move on like yeah. gun violence isn't something that is prevalent in my life you know I, as a queer person I worry about violence but I don't worry about gun violence specifically you know um right I just, it's not something that, that affects me. And reading things like, these are children who are going to a birthday party. These are children right. who were playing outside, sleeping in the car, in their house, the place you're supposed to be the most safe. Safest. And you're in yep. your house. That's why there's the phrase, that British phrase, safest houses. Is that a thing? Yeah, they say safest houses. It's, their, it's one of their phrases. It's like, you know, 
nothing could be safer than your house. Yeah, it and, should be. I mean, yeah. And these are people who are like, not even like a home invasion where you have no, to deal with that kind of thing. It's like, right. It's just random tragedy. This act of violence for no reason with no accountability and no, no explanation ever, ever. You'll never get an explanation no, for it. Yeah. No solution. Yeah. So it just, when I read things like that, that makes me, that's how I feel like, Oh, now I feel like I've learned something. I feel like I've sort of, yeah, like clued into something maybe a little bit more than I would have before. And now when I hear maybe um, a case of, of gun violence in this way or in general, really like it'll make me a little bit more empathetic. Think about it. Yeah. And maybe make me talk about it a little more to somebody else, maybe make me more comfortable. You know, as I said, I don't have a lot of um, knowledge on gun control and policies and law, but this made me more interested and this made me look more at articles up and educate myself. So I hope you know, our podcast in general has a similar effect on anyone out there who has similar insecurities or or worries that they don't know enough about a topic that they're interested in, but they just don't kind of feel secure having conversations about it because it's hard. You know, a lot of people out there pose themselves as like experts and <laughs> pose themselves as the type of person who's ready to just like cut down your mistakes. But like you have said and how we both quoted the Brene Brown that mantra you know i'm here to get it right not be right and i just hope that we continue to do that and yeah because certainly like you know even in me sharing some of the things that i i know through my graduate research i certainly don't know all the answers and i'm sure i will make mistakes and i will get things wrong and so but i think it's important that everybody keep trying yeah you know what um I was going to ask you to to bring it back a little bit lighter. <laughs> what kind of grades do you want to give this episode? <laughs> okay, so we've got like entertainment factor, and then how they did on the issue, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna say I think this was one of their better episodes. Mm-hmm. I think I'm gonna give watchability. I'm gonna say there was some good acting in this, and there was also there was some good acting on the part of the black community in yes. this episode. And then the the law and order side continues to be kind of questionable acting. But uh, so I would say I'm going to give it a B minus because I do think the the humanity and the quality of acting that the um, folks in the black community brought to their performance was really good. So I'm going to give it a B minus. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say for the quality of the issue... I'm going to, again, I think this is one they did better than they usually do. I think there were a lot of changes I would make, and obviously then it wouldn't be a a Law & Order type show. It would be just me giving a sociology lecture. But um, I'm going to give them kind of a a B- minus on that, because I think that, like, the, the mom saying to them, like, why do you keep blaming my child for this? You know, my child did not bring this on themselves. I and and kind of the aspects of like I'm a custodial worker and I don't have the kind of like economic flexibility to deal with these things in my life and this tragedy. I think that those were good things that they showed. I think that they could have followed that up a little bit more, done that a little bit better, like kind of made them that sort of message a little bit more clear. Like the the fact that to an extent, they never really talk about sort of the economic underpinnings that allow these things to happen. I think the fact that they didn't really touch on that at all sort of lets you think of this, these sorts of incidents as more idiosyncratic and 
just like random tragedy than factors of oppression and inequality. So so I'm giving them a B minus because I think they were touching on appropriate messages if they didn't necessarily get there, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. That what makes, about you? You said so you said C no B B minus and I think B I gave them I think yeah B minus on both. Okay. I'm I'm similarly I would say for entertainment watchability I would say C plus. Um, okay. I think for the same reason that they're even getting a C plus is exactly what you said. I thought that the acting on behalf of the black community was was very very good very impactful. I enjoyed seeing um, the actress uh, S Epitha. Merkerson, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but I love her when she comes on the show later on as a cast member. So I was excited to see her. So that made it exciting. I did yeah. not like the nicknames in the episode. I thought they were like very, it just was very unrealistic. Um, it was hard for me to see these 12 year olds and 13 year olds as hired hitmen um, in the way they were presenting it. Yes. You know, it, it just, it was very, I don't know. I did, and I, I, again, that moment where he just figured out that the kid couldn't read. And that would have been very easy to write a, a moment into the episode where someone saw him go into like the women's restroom or something. You know what I mean? Like just, right. it would have been very easy. But no, they just yes. like, oh, hmm, I wonder. So C plus for that, because I think there were some reaches. <laughs> yes, I agree. And again, like, I, one of the things that I have said and kind of continue to say is it's important to look at the the messages that the, kind of the common person would be able to take away from this episode and the fact that the the show didn't just was like this kid can't read and it and it was a random tragedy kind of thing diminishes the real world like I said oppression and inequality that factor into these types of incidents happening but also like the the fact that like oh this kid can't read nobody said like this is a failing of our education system blah 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 blah. so it so people who don't realize that there are like really big failings in our education system and and the funding that we give to our education system specifically would be able could just look at that and go like well that kid didn't know how to read and fucked up that's really tragic not not kind of thinking about that bigger picture that contributes to that, right? Exactly. So I, I one of the things that I I want to want us to do and continue to do is to say like, okay, but the way that they talked about is about this episode and this subject could imply this, and so it's important that we kind of talk about those things. So yeah, I agree. I, I thank you for bringing that up because I I agree with you. Great. See, we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. Um. Well, for, oh, I didn't give you my grade for the uh. For the, oh, sorry. Oh, wow. You're just trying to get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> um, my grade for the way it handled the issue, I would give you the same as a, a B minus. Yeah. Um, okay. I think they did really well. And I also liked that, whereas in previous episodes, issues like this come up where, you know, um, like a, an impactful statement is made like the one I referenced in the hair salon yeah. and then just yeah. kind of goes away and they don't really talk about it anymore. Um, or they just kind of present it as a alternative opinion. I feel like yeah. in this one, it was more like, yes, this is an alternative opinion and it actually appears to be true. And all the evidence right. in the episode supports that. And like, I liked the moment when, you know, they keep hassling her and she keeps telling them like, do you realize I'm an incredible grieving and I, I can't even get a day off to come see, to, to do any of this. 
Um, and then when Robinette goes to her for the last time and is asking him, her and she walks him out and he says like, she's like, my son didn't do this. I don't know how many times I could say this. I don't know why you guys are like hounding me. And like, instead of like being like, sorry, we have to like Robinette is like, I know like he, he yeah. like admits like, no, we, we know like we, we have nothing. We have nothing. Yeah. And like, he almost yeah. like has this moment of like empathy and understanding for her like position, you know? And it was like a nice human moment. So I like that as well. So B minus. Awesome. Well, that was a heavy episode. So I hope everybody goes and pets a puppy right now Uh, or watches a video of a kitten on the internet or something. So do it. And then goes and investigates more about uh, inequality and gun violence. Yeah. And ways we (laughs) can do both of those. Ways we can maybe make some sort of change. Until that happens uh you will hear from us next week and uh we you can find us on social media on instagram and the other one twitter um <laughs> at ripped headlines and you can email us at ripped headlines pod at wait is it ripped headlines pod or just ripped headlines i believe it's ripped headlines pod yeah ripped headlines pod at gmail.com perfect uh and don't forget to like rate review subscribe and tell a friend yes and we'll see you next week Goodbye. Bye.